Well, I don't have one scripture for you this morning. I have a whole boatload of them for you. Um, and we'll talk about that. Um, I do want you to know at the outset, as we walk into this, that uh, you will see many, many scriptures in your um, sermon notes, and we are not going to look through all of those. Um, so you, what you can do with those, the ones that we don't get to, revisit them later, reread them. Uh, but what we're doing this morning, we're taking one week, just one week, a one-week break um, from Matthew uh, to, and I promised that we would do this as we've been walking through Matthew 18, to talk about the issue of biblical correction. Uh, how do we practice it? I mean, that's really what a lot of Matthew 18 has been dealing with. Uh, not the whole thing, but uh, Matthew 18 has been giving us instructions of how do we relate to one another in the community of faith? How do we relate to one another as disciples of Jesus in the new covenant? How do we interact with one another? And a huge part of that is biblical correction, uh, and you would tie that in with biblical confrontation. Uh, and this is a concept we are probably uncomfortable with. Uh, if we're honest. Now, some of you might be perfectly comfortable with confronting one another and correcting one another. There might be another issue going on there that we can talk about. Um, but uh, but uh, in general, none of us likes confrontation and it's something that we're uncomfortable with. And so we need to develop some tools about this. Let's first ask, ask the question, why? Why are we uncomfortable with correction? Why are we uncomfortable with confronting one another? Well, maybe it's, uh, it just boils down to this. We have a good relationship with that person. We don't want to jeopardize the relationship. We don't want people thinking badly about us. We don't want to make waves, and so we don't confront. Or maybe it's more than that. Maybe we've grown up in an environment where uh, plenty of bad fights, plenty of explosive bad aspects of confrontation in our families and family settings, and so we don't, we don't want to get into that, especially in the church. We don't want to deal with that. Uh, or we're perhaps we're afraid it's going to start looking. If I go to correct someone, if I go to confront a fellow brother and sister in Christ, it's going to start looking like a social media smear fight. If you spent any amount of time on social media, you realize that uh, uh, correction in a social media uh, sense looks like uh, just a banter going back and forth between comments, um, and it looks nasty, it gets nasty, it's a smear fight. And so we're afraid of that. Uh, we don't want to do that. People will say things on, on social media that they would never say to a person in, uh, well, to someone else in person. Why is that? Because there's a veil of anonymity. I'm, I'm distant from you. There's a screen separating us from us. I can say whatever I want, but that's not the kind of correction we want to get involved in uh, at all. Uh, and that's not the kind of correction we're talking about this morning. Here's maybe another reason why we are uncomfortable with correction and confrontation. It goes exactly opposite our culture of acceptance. You see, our culture says that um, if I love you, if I love you, then uh, if I truly love you, I'm not going to correct you at all. Uh, in fact, I'm not going to, the exact opposite of correction or confrontation, I'm going to celebrate Whatever you're into and whatever you're about, I'm not going to correct that. That's the height of, that's the, 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 the height of our culture's sin. Uh, it, it, instead, um, uh, in, instead of that, uh, we, uh, we, 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 celebrate, we celebrate whatever it is about that other person. So maybe we breathe that air. I mean, we, we like to think the culture doesn't affect us, but it does. And so we breathe that air. And so it makes us uncomfortable talking about confr confronting or correcting someone else. 
But I would submit to you, and what I want to argue for you this morning, is that the culture of the gospel, the culture of redeemed sinners, the culture of those who recognize their sinfulness and who know that they are redeemed and saved by Jesus Christ, a culture, well, that culture that embraces, is gripped by the reality of the gospel will be a culture where pleasing God is more important than pleasing self and will be a culture of practicing biblical, wise, good confrontation. The culture of the gospel, the culture of love from Jesus will be a culture that practices biblical correction. And so because of that, it's necessary to talk about that. Correction and confrontation is necessary in the life of the local church. Now you might say, and we'll talk about this more later, but well, if we just practice confrontation correction all the time, aren't we going to be a grumpy, morose people? And I'm going to argue to you, no, not at all. In fact, it's going to be the exact opposite if we do it well. Now, before we get going even further, I do want to highlight that, that what we're talking about this morning, when we talk about confrontation and correction, I am talking about doing so in the context of the local church. In fact, that's what the scriptures would lead us to, that that's the primary arena for confrontation. Uh, is there a, such a thing as confrontation and correction within the family? Absolutely. Uh, what about outside of that? Yeah, there's going to be principles that we talk about this morning that are going to apply to your family, that are going to apply to working relationships, et cetera, et cetera. But what we are focusing on this morning is correction and confrontation in the life of a local church. Confrontation and correction done right in the local church will produce a healthy and happy local church that honors Christ. Now, before we go even further, I want to give you a resource beyond just the scriptures that I've listed in your bulletin this morning. Uh, there's a book that would be helpful to you if you want to think about this more, you want to know how to do this better. Obviously, we can't hit every single point this morning, uh, but a good book is Pursuing Peace by Robert Jones. Pursuing Peace by Robert Jones. I have a couple copies in my office. Uh, but especially what we're talking about this morning, he addresses in chapter 10 of that book. The whole book is excellent. Uh, I just recently read through it with someone else, and it's an excellent book. Uh, but especially what we're talking about this morning is chapter 10 in that book. So that's a worthwhile follow-up to what we're talking about this morning. So here's the big idea for this morning as we jump into this. You need to practice and receive biblical correction out of Christ's love for fellow believers and the church. You need, I'm talking individually, I'm talking about you, you need to practice and receive biblical correction out of Christ's love for fellow believers and the church. So I want to walk you through this, and some of these points we've, um, we've already touched on in Matthew 18, and we want to rehash them and pull them together and kind of summarize what we're talking about. So first, let's start here, you must correct uh, you might, uh, the, the, the question you might ask uh, that this is designed to address is, uh, really? Am I really supposed to be involved in confronting people? Am I really supposed to be involved in correcting people? Can I just let, let it slide? Can't I just not deal with it? Can I just not think about it? Can I just ignore it? And my argument to you is, it's actually not my argument, it's what Jesus would say to you, you must correct. It's not an option. 
Let's just start there. But before we talk about motivations, before we talk about profit, process, let's just talk about it as a command. This is something each one of us, as members of a local church, as members of Faith Bible Church, must be involved in. It's not a good idea or a suggestion. It's a command. Let me prove that to you. And you probably already know this to be true from what we've said. But Matthew 18, 15, where we were a couple weeks ago, what does Jesus say? says this in Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins, go and tell him his fault. What does Jesus say? If your brother, and that would encompass brother or sister disciples within the local church, that's who he's addressing, that's the context of Matthew 18. If your brother sins, what do you do? Do you sit and stew on it? Do you sit and work it over and over and over in your mind? Do you ignore it? Do you sweep it under the rug? No. What's the first thing you do? You go. You go. You move. And what do you do? You, as the ESV has it, tell him his fault. And we talked about this word. This word is the idea that you're laying out a case. You're laying out a case from the scriptures, from Jesus' commands, uh, and you're addressing directly that brother or sister and saying, brother or sister, here's what Jesus says. Here's what the scriptures say. And here's where you are in sin, and you must repent. But for us, for what we're talking about right now, it's a command. you got to do it. Remember, he's not addressing the leaders here. He's addressing any given disciple in the local church. It is the responsibility of any given member disciple of a local church to be involved in the process of correction. We could see it also in Luke 17. Go to Luke 17. Similar idea. Luke 17, 3. Jesus says this, pay attention to yourselves. Now, he's not just talking, you see, the, it's a plural. Pay attention to yourselves, meaning what? Uh, there is a sense in which we are vigilant within the local church, as members of a local church, we are vigilant, not just for our own souls, although that is definitely true, but for each other, and we are paying attention to ourselves, and what? What does Jesus say? He says effectively the same thing as he says in Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Rebuke is a strong word. It, it means that you are uh, pointed. You are saying, brother or sister, you are in sin. What you have done is sin. It is wrong, and you need to change. That is what a rebuke is. If he, uh, if, he sin, uh, if he sins, repent, uh, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So again, Jesus reiterates the command, rebuke, do it. It's your responsibility. It's your responsibility within the context of paying attention not only to your own soul, but to the souls of those whom you are in covenant relationship with in the local church. So you can't stew on it. You can't talk about it behind someone's back. That's gossip. That's sin. You have to go, and you have to rebuke, and you have to correct. It's a command. Another passage, uh, we're not going to go there, but another passage uh, for this in the Old Testament, Le uh, Leviticus 19, 17 through 18. And there it says, don't hate your brother in your heart, which is what we tend to do. If we see someone sinning, uh, maybe it's sin against us, but maybe they just sin in general, and it's, it builds up and it tends towards hatred. And God's um, 
a delegated release valve for it is going and rebuking, going and showing. You are in the wrong, brother or sister, you need to repent. You need to repent. So first, you must. It's a must. It's a command. You must do it. So at least at that level, before we talk about motivations, before we talk about the process, you got to do it. It's non-optional. You have to do it. We all have to be involved in it. So just at the sheer level of Jesus saying, obey, we have to do it. But how do we do this? What is our motivation for doing this? And that's what we want to address next is not only must you correct, but secondly, you must correct out of the right motives. You must correct out of the right motives. We've all met the person probably or interacted or seen the person who has no trouble pointing out faults, but the question is, you can point out faults, but is that the right motivation? Are they doing it out of the right motivation? And if you were to boil down the motivation for correction within the local church, for confrontation in the local church, if you were to boil it down to one motivation, it would be this, love. Love. Which sounds counterintuitive because, like I said, in our culture, right, the idea of love is I accept and celebrate no matter what you're doing uh, at all. But actually what the scriptures would tell us is that the motivation for love moves you to correct that other person, to confront that other person. And we've already seen some of that within the context of Matthew 18. If you remember in Matthew 18, uh, 10 through 14, which is that section right before we go into the passage in Matthew 18, 15 about correction. Remember what Matthew 18, 10 through 14 talks about. It talks about uh, a man who owns 100 sheep, one goes astray, and, uh, it, uh, and he goes after that one who's astray to bring him back to the flock. And we see in that the heart of the father, that is who is represented in that parable, to rescue a straying sheep, one who is in sin. And the implication that Jesus draws is if you love, uh, you don't despise your fellow disciple, but you actually love them like the father loves them, you're going to go after them. You're going to invest significant resources to go after that straying sheep because you love them. But we can see this attitude elsewhere in the scriptures as well. Turn to Revelation. Turn to Revelation. This is one of actually my favorite passages to go to when talking about correction and how to do it is Revelation 2 through 3. And you might scratch your head for a minute. It's like, well, that's a little bit interesting. Why would we go to Revelation uh, to talk about correction unless we're talking about pulling, pouring bowls of like wrath on people or something like that? No, that's not what we're talking about. Revelation 2 through 3, uh, uh, Revelation is written to seven churches. Uh, it is written to the church. It is for the church. But what's interesting about how Revelation begins, and you know this, is that Jesus is addressing his local churches. Churches, specific local churches, he calls them lampstands, in different geographic regions in Asia Minor. And Jesus himself addresses his local churches. Go to the last one, Laodicea in 3.14. And I'm going to just read this, this paragraph. We could read any one of these churches, but Laodicea... Uh, illustrates the point I'm trying to make here. So let's go to 3.14 and listen to this. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. 
For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline." So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you see what's going on there? Jesus is addressing his beloved local church. He died for this local church. And you see how frank Jesus is with this local church. He calls them out. He says, uh, you think you're okay, but you're not. You're pitiable, poor, wretched, blind. That's a rebuke. But why does he say he's doing it? Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Because he wants that church to repent, to be brought back, from the way they were going, this way of straying, straying from God's design for the church, straying for uh, them as individuals. It's that heart that is displayed of the good shepherd seeking uh, the straying sheep. It's out of love. And that ought also to be the heart of Christian correction for one another. Love for an individual believer and love for the corporate reality of the church. Both of those are why we confront, why we correct. Again, just to emphasize this, um, especially with regard to the individual. So we see an individual straying sheep, and we've talked about this in Matthew 18. The heart of love says, because I love that person, because Jesus has loved them, because the Father loves them, I'm going to go after them, and I'm going to shake them by the shoulders with a rebuke, with a correction, so that they come back. I love Proverbs on this issue as well. If you just were to read through the book of Proverbs, you would see this theme come up again and again and again and again. Let me point out one to you. Go to Proverbs 27. Go to Proverbs 27. Proverbs 27, verse 5. And what's interesting about Proverbs is Proverbs not addresses both sides. It addresses the issue of uh, if you're correcting someone, but also if you're being corrected. It addresses both sides. But notice what it says here in Proverbs 25, 27, 5. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Now think about that for a minute. Proverbs are supposed to be salty. You're supposed to think about them a little bit. Um, what do we normally argue? Say, ah, I see that in that other person, but I don't want to address it. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to make waves. You know, we have all sorts of excuses. Oh, I love that person, so I'm not going to address them. But what does Proverbs talk about? If you do love them, then you're going to, you're going to rebuke them. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. You say out of love, well, I'm not going to rebuke that person. Well, it's just the exact opposite. Open rebuke is better than hidden love. Verse 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. 
Uh, I mean, we normally think, oh, if you're a friend, you're going to be nice to me, you're not going to wound me, you're not going to hurt me. Again, that's how our culture thinks about it, but this is the exact opposite of what the scriptures would say. A faithful friend is going to hurt you for your good. He's going to wound you. No one likes correction. No one likes to be corrected. And yet, if it is done out of the right motivation, out of love, a faithful friend will wound you when necessary to draw you back. A faithful friend will stand up to you courageously to say, brother or sister, you're going the wrong way, and I, I don't want that for you. I want you back. But someone who flatters, someone who doesn't actually do any correction whatsoever, it's just, it's, uh, it's, it's like you're an enemy. Uh, you may think you're helping that person, but you're actually not. So that's our motivation of correction, of rebuke, is love. Love, because I want to see you. If you're a straying individual, you're going off into sin. Maybe it's sin against me. Maybe it's just something else I've seen in your life. But I don't want you to stray that way. I don't want you to stray to your destruction. That's the context of Matthew 18, that heaven and hell are at stake. I don't want you to stray, so I'm going to go after you. I'm going to correct you. Even if it hurts me and you to do it, I am going to correct you. You see someone stumbling towards the edge of a cliff, you're going to run after them. You're not going to stand on ceremony. You're going to grab them and say, don't go any farther because you're going to fall into a cliff. Now, that's one, uh, that's one scenario, right, where you see a, a fellow brother or sister straying, and they're going uh, their own way, and you're trying to rescue them. There's actually another case where uh, we need to correct and rebuke the person in sin, and that's on behalf of another. So think about this scenario. You might be in a situation where you see a brother or sister in the local church hurting another brother or sister in the local church. What do you do? Do you say, well, it's, it's a conflict uh, between them. It's not about me. Uh, I need to get away from that. I don't need to deal with it. No, the scriptures would actually have us stand up on behalf of the, of the one being hurt. So you got a brother hurting another brother or sister uh, in the church. Your role and your job is to stand up on, on behalf of the one being hurt. And this is, this is evidence throughout the scriptures. Uh, go to Proverbs 31, since we were in Proverbs um, just a minute ago. Now, Proverbs 31, we're not going to the excellent wife section. That's not what I'm talking about here. So um, this is uh, Proverbs 31. The first part is the words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. And so the, a leader is being addressed here, no doubt. But I think the principles that verses 8 and 9 in Proverbs 31 talk about address the issue that we're, we're seeing, where you've got a, sin, a brother or sister in the local church sinning against another brother or sister in the local church, what do you do? Verses 8 and 9, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. And there's elsewhere throughout the prophets, throughout the Old Testament, that idea that if you're walking closely with God and you see oppression within the community, it is your role and your job to stand up on behalf of the weak. And so we see someone sinning against another brother and sister. Yes, we have concern for the one who is doing the oppression, doing the, uh, who is the oppressor, but we have greater concern for the one being oppressed, the one who is being hurt. 
you want to see an example of this in the New Testament, go to James. Go to James. Go to James uh, right after Hebrews, a little ways before the end, before First uh, Peter. James 5, just as an example. So this is just an example of what it would look like within the context of the local church to stand up for the rights of someone else being hurt in the local church. This is driven out of love, but it's the love for the one being hurt. Yes, there's love for the one who's hurting the other, but primarily the love is directed towards the one being oppressed. James 5, James 5, 1 through 6. Listen to this. This is what James, the brother of Jesus, says. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. What is James doing? James sees a situation in which the rich, in this context, are oppressing their workers, their laborers. They're not giving them their due. And so what is James doing in the context of addressing a situation in the local church? He stands up for the rights of the oppressed. He stands up for the rights of those being hurt, and we ought to do the same. Love will motivate you to correct the one doing the sin, but love will also motivate you to stand up for the rights of the one who is being sinned against. But again, the motivation is love. Now, in both of those situations, that's a one-on-one sort of a thing. That's an individual-to-individual sort of scenario. But there's another scenario that we need to think about that motivates our correction. We motivate out of love. We motivate out of love for the one who is sinning. We, motivate, we are motivated out of love uh, for the one who has sinned against. But then we're also motivated by a love for the local church as a whole, a corporate love, a corporate love. We've talked about this in Matthew um, and in other places quite a bit. Um, Jesus saves individuals, but he saves them into a temple assembly uh, uh, which is manifested in the local church. And so in Matthew 18, you've got this tension. You've got this tension where there's the value on the individual who might be going astray uh, with regard, uh, 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 as opposed to the 99, the corporate reality that's staying behind. But there's a tension between those. There's a tension between the individual and there's a tension between the corporate. You love both. But there may come a point where the love for the corporate is going to have you uh, expel a someone who is in sin. Turn to 1 Corinthians 5. We've already looked at this in Matthew 18. Let's see another aspect of this, another kind of iteration of this in 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5 is a foundational passage in a lot of ways for understanding the authority of the local church uh, and how it governs itself. You might not think of it on the first reading of it, but there are a lot of principles within it. And the principle I want you to see is how love for the local church will have you do what 1 Corinthians 5 is doing in terms of confrontation and correction. 1 Corinthians 5. Corinthian church is um, a mess, and Paul is addressing one of the issues in it. So he's 
confronting them as a church, but notice what he's saying here. 1 Corinthians 5.1. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. See, they're, they're boasting, and he'll say it a little bit later, they're boasting of their tolerance. Saying, we're tolerant, we're allowing this guy who's, yeah, we know about his sin, but we're allowing this guy because of love. Doesn't that sound like the loving thing to do, to accept him? And they're actually boasting about it. You're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So now Paul is saying, uh, this guy has to go. This, this so-called brother is in sin. He's got to be put out of the church which goes against our culture, right? Uh, if you love someone, you celebrate them, you welcome them in. And what Paul is saying, no, you actually have to expel this person. Look at what he continues to say, verse 3. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled, so we're talking about the assembly, right? The assembly, the temple assembly coming together in the name of the Lord Jesus. We saw that language in Matthew 18, that Jesus puts his name on the local assembly, gives it authority to speak on behalf of heaven, and that's what we see happening here. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So what is, what is Paul saying? He's saying, you guys have to assemble so that you have the authority of heaven to speak uh, and to deliver this person where? Over to Satan. What does that mean? It means the realm of the church, when it is assembled together, that is the sphere of heaven, right? We said it, that the, the local church is an embassy of the future kingdom of heaven, and it, it's constituted when there's an assembly together. Well, what then is outside of that realm? Outside of the realm of the church is the realm of Satan. Until Jesus, at the end of time, kicks Satan out of the world, the world is Satan's realm, and the church exists as an embassy of heaven within that realm. And so what are you doing with this, uh, this, this so-called brother, as he'll call him later? You expel him. Uh, uh, and even notice here, even here, there is a hint of individual love. Why do you expel that one? Just to get him out? No, because even Paul says in verse 5, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Meaning what? Even when you take that final step of expulsion from the community, that's the final stage of trying to shake the person by the shoulder and say, wake up to the individual so that you might come back. But what does Paul continue to say? Yes, there's a concern for the individual, but there's more than that going on. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And what Paul re is referencing there is the Passover meal. The Passover was this quintessential meal that celebrated God's rescuing Israel from Egypt. And he's likening that to Christ's sacrifice. Remember, Jesus instituted the, uh, the Lord's Supper uh, at, right before he went to the cross, which is this work of redemption. It's likened to the exodus of, of God pulling his people out of sin. And he's saying, because God has done that, you, you, need, to, you need to cleanse out of the church 
a, 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 a lump of leaven. What is leaven? It, it functions like yeast. It's sourdough. You put a little lump of sourdough in a batch of other dough, it's going to leaven the whole thing. And what is Paul's point? You allow this evil to go on in the church, it's going to spread through the whole church. It's going to damage the whole church. So out of concern for purity of the church, you get rid of the old leaven. You expel this person from the community. He goes on, verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, so he's saying someone's claiming to be a Christian, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church with whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And what is Paul motivated by? Paul is motivated out of love. Yes, love for the individual. He wants even this sinner, this gross sinner, who is claiming to be a brother, he's saying expel him, but he's hopeful that uh, maybe God grabs a hold of his heart, he sees the error of his ways, he sees the grossness of his sin and the destruction it's bringing him to, and he's brought back. So there's concern for the individual. But also in this passage, there is love and concern for the corporate reality of the church. Because Christ is saving a people. Yes, he is saving individuals, but he's saving a people. He loves that people as they are corporately constituted, and so ought we. We confront out of love for that individual, but we also confront out of love for the church to purge evil from the midst of it. Because Jesus, in part of what he is doing, yes, he is saving that individual, but he's saving a people, and he's saving a people to be distinct, definable, and visible. Remember Revelations? Revelation, Jesus likens his local churches to lampstands. They're to shine out in the world. They're to be a beacon in a dark world ruled by Satan. And if they are defiled by iniquity and sin such that the world can't see any difference between the church and the world, they, have, they, they can't function properly. So for love for Christ, love for the church that he is saving, you confront, yes, for the good of the individual, but for the love of the local church. The gospel and the, the gospel realities at stake will drive you to this. Here's another example of this happening in the context of a local church. Go to Galatians. Go to Galatians. Love for the gospel and the glories of the gospel and what Jesus is doing in the gospel, saving individuals and saving a people for himself, will drive you to bold, courageous confrontation, even against leadership, if necessary. Look at Galatians 2, 11. But when Cephas, now Cephas is the Aramaic form of the word Peter. Peter means rock in Greek. Cephas means rock in Aramaic. So we're talking about Peter here. But when Cephas came to Antioch, and this is Paul writing, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when he, uh, they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. 
And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw, now catch this, verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now notice what's going on here. You've got an apostle, Paul, confronting an apostle in the context of the local church. Why is he doing that? Isn't that going to just tear apart? Like, don't the apostles need to present a united front? Isn't that the wrong venue? It's public. What's going on here? Well, because of the realities of the gospel that are at stake, Paul boldly and courageously confronts Peter. And he was right to do so because of the realities of the gospel at stake. Because Peter's sin was uh, pulling away the lo- a local church in a wrong direction, Love for the church, love for the gospel prompted Paul to confront Peter, and he was right to do so. And what's cool about this is we do have an inkling later on in 2 Peter, he calls Paul beloved, our beloved brother Paul. So this didn't tear them apart, this actually brought them together in the gospel. That's our motivations for correction. It's always out of love. It's not for self-promotion. It's not to, you know, because we understand that, right? We, can, we understand the idea of, well, I'm going to point out all your faults so I look better. That's the kind of judgment that Jesus is speaking against in Matthew 7. Judge not, that kind of judgment, where you put down another to exalt yourself. But when your judgment, God does call us to judge one another, but the judgment is based out of love. Love for Christ, love for the gospel, love for the other, love for the church. And when you're motivated out of love, that is, the, that is how you ought to be motivated in correcting and confronting another. If it's not out of love, you say, well, I see that sin against that other person, and then you examine your heart and you say, well, this is about me or about something else, about me bearing a grudge or about me hating, then you can't confront until you deal with that. Which actually leads us right into the next point. What have we seen? You must correct. It's a command. It's not optional. Uh, We've seen you must correct out of the right motives, love for the individual and love for the church. And then next, we want to see this. You must correct wisely. You must correct wisely. And now what we're talking about, we're talking about the process, okay? So you might agree, all right, I get it. It's a command. I get it. Love is supposed to drive me. But how do you do this? How do you do this? How do you do this well? I've kind of used this illustration of a scalpel, right? Correction and confrontation is like a scalpel. You use it well, it does great good. You do it badly, you're going to do great harm. And so we need to know how do you correct wisely, And I already mentioned one passage where we're going to start, Matthew 7. Matthew 7. Go to Matthew 7, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's talking to kingdom citizens, and he's saying, here's how you live as citizens in the kingdom. And this is what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Judge not that you be not judged. Now, people love to quote that verse. They love to quote that verse. 
but they don't understand what it means because what they're using, usually, usually what people are doing in quoting that verse is they're saying, well, you can't, you can't say what I'm doing is evil. You can't say what I'm doing is wrong because Jesus said, judge not. Well, that's not actually what Jesus is saying. What, the backdrop of what Jesus is saying is the scribes and the Pharisees. And the scribes and the Pharisees love to point out other people's faults uh, to elevate themselves. Well, yeah, that kind of judgment Jesus is totally against. That's what he's talking about. And we can see it from the context as we read on. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What is Jesus' point? Jesus' point is uh, you, can, you can point out other people's faults to, uh, to, one, ignoring your own, but to focus attention on the other person's faults rather than your own. But what is Jesus' point? Deal with your own sin first. Recognize your own sin first. And then you're done. Is that what he says? No, he actually says, deal with your own sin first. Get the log out of your own eye. Get the issues that are, that are not causing you to see straight out of your own eye. And then what? You will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. In other words... Uh, there's an issue of correction here, and there is a speck in your brother's eye, but you got to deal with your own sin first and then go after that other person. So, and when we talk about the process of correction, you always got to start with looking at yourself first. What are my issues? Or even if it's a specific issue in that person's life, ask yourself, well, where does that crop up in my life? Where is that showing up in my life? And then what? Repent, seek to change direction, and then what? Go and correct. Deal with yourself first. See your sin first and see it as more significant. And once you're repented up and prayed up, then go. Now, this raises a question. Um, go to whom? Who are you to confront? And you might say, well, what do you mean who am I to confront? Anyone who sins against me? Well, the fact of the matter is there's levels of responsibility to this. Because I started this, um, our time together this morning with this. Um, primarily what the scriptures talk about when they talk about confronting is within the context of the local church. So certainly, um, you would say, well, what, what about my um, work associate who sins against me? Or what about some unbeliever that sins against me? Well, you may have the opportunity to confront them, but that's not actually your responsibility. How do I know that? Go back to 1 Corinthians 5. Now, there is the sense in which you need to confront an unbeliever with the gospel, right? We're called to do that, to warn and to woo unbelievers for the gospel. But notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, back to the passage we read a few minutes ago. Verse 12. Notice how he ends. 1 Corinthians 5, 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Who's he talking about? He's talking about people who are outside the local church. He's talking about Corinth, and he's talking about, um, you know, a situation that needs to be dealt with. And he's saying, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? 
God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Our primary responsibility in correction and confrontation is within the bounds of the local church. So yes, you may have an opportunity to correct an unbeliever. You may have an opportunity within your family to correct using these same principles. But your primary responsibility is to the local church. You might say, well, what about, what about if I have, uh, there's another believer at another local church, and, uh, you know, I see them in sin. That's possible. We encounter that. Uh, do I still have a responsibility to correct them? Yes. But there's only so far you can go with it, because you can't church discipline nor participate in the process of church discipline for that individual, because they're under the jurisdiction of another local church. Your primary responsibility and primary concern will be believers within the local church, fellow members within a local church. Now, even within that, there's a wisdom principle. Um, Can you confront someone who you have no meaningful relationship with, with, even within the local church? Yes, you can. Uh, Scripture gives us that warrant. So you see a fellow believer within the local church, but you don't have a meaningful relationship with them, Uh, yeah, you still have a responsibility to confront them. How well is that going to go? Probably not as well as it could. Because what? Um, People listen. You have more influence when you are known and know that other person. When you've been in the trenches with them, when they know that that you love them, when you are know and are known... In that relationship, you have more ability to confront, and that's healthy for that. If that person goes astray, and you know them, and you come up to them, they're more likely to listen to you. Yeah, you can confront without a meaningful relationship with another person. It's just probably not going to go as well. This is another call for, even as members of a local church, right, we can, we can become members which is good, you ought to do that, but what is the goal behind that? The goal behind that is to know and be known. To know and be known, to submit to the authority of a local church so that people know you, your life, so that if you go astray, you can be corrected. So that's who you confront. Talk about principles there. Here's the next question you ask um, as you're thinking about this. All right, I've prayed up. I've recognized my own sin. I've dealt with the log in my own eye, and now I want to go to this person. You're confronting someone in a local church. Here's the next question you need to ask. Is it actual sin? Because what Jesus says in Matthew 18, 15 is what? If your brother sins. Doesn't say if your brother annoys you, um, or uh, if your sister annoys you, then you go and confront them. If they do something that you don't like, or you would have done it a different way, then you go and confront them. No, if your brother sins you got to be dealing with actual sin. Now, there may be an opportunity, like, there's things that are sin, like, this is sin and this is not sin. And then there are things that, like, Proverbs talk about, this is wise and this is not wise. There can be something that's not wise that's not sinful. And so there may be an opportunity where you say, brother or sister, I just don't think that's wise. You may have an opportunity to do that. But when we're talking about correction and confrontation, you need to ask the question, is it actual sin? sin. Even if it is sin, 
that doesn't necessarily mean you confront. Well, and you might say, well, what do you mean by that? Jesus says, if your brother sins, go and reprove him. Well, can you agree with me that there are things in a horizontal sense? Now, we understand that in a vertical way, all sin is equally damnable before a holy God. Even the smallest sin, even a wrong heart that no one else sees, no one else observes, a wrong heart, a wrong attitude is condemnable to eternal hell by a holy God who every sin is a slap in the face, a, 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 it's grand treason against a holy God. Every sin in God's sight is worthy of that. However, will you agree with me, and I think the scriptures back me up here, that horizontally in my relationships with others, not all sin is equal. Murder is not the same as cutting someone off in a rage. Adultery is not the same as insulting someone verbally. There's a difference there. So what do you do if you see a sin in someone's life, but you're like, you know, um, is that something that needs to be confronted? That's the question. Because there is a category in the scriptures for overlooking, not forgiving, but overlooking someone's offense. Go to Proverbs 17.9. And there's other places in Proverbs you would see this too. I'll just pick one. Proverbs 17.9. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. There's other verses, like I said, Proverbs 10, 12, 12, 16, 19, 11, that basically say the same thing. But the idea is that in a relationship with another, there's going to be sin that happens. There's going to be an offense. But you've got to ask the question, okay, that's an offense. That's a sin. Do I need to correct it or can love cover it? Can love overlook it? Can I overlook the offense? And in general, you should be ready to do that. Uh, in that book, Pursuing Peace by Robert Jones, he says, your default response should be to overlook. Your default response should be. But you got to weigh, okay, well, is this a sin issue that I really need to confront them? Well, you're like, well, what are the criteria then? Well, remember Matthew 18, we're dealing with sin issues that are persistent, that are unrepentant, that are, if the person persists in it, is going to lead them to destruction. So it's serious sin that you're dealing with. Now, you might want to, you just got to weigh it. It's a wisdom thing. It's not a, it's not a question of always do it he, when it's this or always do it when it's that or don't, never do it here. It's a wisdom issue. But you want to weigh before you go and confront someone, is this actual sin? And even if it is actual sin, is it something I can cover and just overlook? Or is it something for the good of the other person and for the good of the church needs to be addressed? Okay, suppose you do all that. Uh, I've confessed my sin. I've dealt with my own sin. Uh, I, this is a fellow brother or sister in the local church. It's actual sin. It's risen to the level where I actually need to confront it. What do you do? You go to that person. Now we're in Matthew 18, 15 through 17 territory. You go to that person one-on-one. But here's some wisdom from Jesus uh, about how you do that and how you handle that conversation. Go back to Revelation. Again, I told you Revelation 2 and 3 are some of my favorite passages in how you do confrontation. Let's read another church. Go to Revelation 2, 
starting in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from which you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now notice how Jesus goes about this. What does he do? You can see it in the other churches as well. He starts with the positive. He says, these are the things you're doing really well on. But I have this against you. And then he actually ends with another praise. But you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So what is he doing? He's sandwiching criticism in between praise. He's saying, these are the things that I legitimately uh, affirm about you. And then he's critiquing. And then he's following up, even in this case, with an aspect of affirmation. Now, this doesn't happen in all of the churches. In fact, the one we read earlier about Laodicea, there is no praise. Why? Because there's nothing legitimately to affirm. And yet, when you go into a conversation with someone and you're confronting them, it's best, if you can, and if there is something legitimate, you don't want to make something up, you don't want to lie, but if there's something legitimate there to be affirmed, affirm it. Brother or sister, you are doing well in this aspect. I see you doing this. This is so encouraging. Uh, but, um, you know, hey, I've been concerned about this issue. Uh, and you might even ask questions. I saw this. Is there, um, is, 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 am I understanding that right? And you kind of get to, uh, they understand that you're on their side. You're doing this out of love. You're not doing this to elevate self. So affirm the person where you can before you get to the confrontation. And then as necessary, you go through the process outlined in 18, 15 through 17. You do it one-on-one. You don't talk about behind their back. You don't murmur. You go and talk to the person. You deal with it. This is where gossip starts and where gossip is a sin. You talk about it behind their back. You consider it behind their back. It is wrong, and it's not going to help you. It's not going to help them. It's not going to help the church. Go to them one-on-one. Keep the circle as small as you can. That's the principle between starting one-on-one. If necessary, you bring in an extra two, one or two. And then if necessary, you bring it to the church. That's what Matthew 18 talks about. In that context, as we saw last week, you are always ready to forgive. You are gripped by the heart of being forgiven an enormous debt by your heavenly Father, and you are always ready to forgive that other person if it is an offense against you. But not only that, when you enter confrontation and correction with another brother or sister, you can't just go in and say, all right, here's what's wrong. I hope you fix that. Bye. No. When you are entering in biblical correction and confrontation, you need to do what Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says. Go to Galatians 6, 1 and 2.
Galatians 6.1, right after the fruits of the Spirit. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And what you see here is Paul is saying, okay, someone's fallen into transgression, someone's caught in transgression, go and restore them, but it's the idea of restoring them, bearing their burdens, meaning what? You're not just going to go and point out, here's an issue, a sin issue in your life, and you need to change. You are going to do that, but you're going to walk with them through it. You're going to help them apply biblical principles to their life. You're going to hold them accountable so that they can be helped to change. In other words, it's like if someone's stumbling or falling on the path, you're going to come up alongside that other person, you know, hike them up, and you're going to walk together along with them until they're mended. That's the idea of biblical correction. It just doesn't say, oh, let me point that out and then bye, I'll never see you again. No, you've got to stay with them through that process, which might be very, very costly in terms of time and other resources to help them, what? Follow Jesus. Because that's the motivation. You love them, you love Jesus, you want them to love Jesus, and you want to help them to love and follow Jesus more. There's more that could be said, but that's the basic process. So, you must correct. You must correct out of the right motives. You must correct wisely. And finally, this. You must receive correction humbly. You must receive correction humbly. Uh, if I stopped at point three, we would be, have a lot of good principles, but we would be half of the way there, because the other half is how do you receive it? How do you receive it? And the key here is two things, humility and a desire for holiness. If someone corrects you, or let me put it this way, you should desire, if you are astray, for someone to correct you. But the only way you're actually going to desire that is if you are humble and you have a desire for holiness more than you have a desire for comfort. Um, let's see this in the Old Testament. There's some great Psalms about this. Let's see this with David, man after God's own heart, man that God had chosen, um, a, a good king. He had his own faults, and he acknowledges that. Go to Psalm 19. We know Psalm 19 uh, talks about how the heavens declare the glory of God, and then it talks about how the law of the Lord is perfect. Well, at the end, at the end, David says this, Psalm 19, 12. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. What is David saying? He's saying, 
I can't discern all that's wrong with me. I can't discern my errors. He's pleading with God that if there is error, that he would reveal it, and so it might be dealt with. He recognizes he has blind spots. He's humble enough to recognize that he has blind spots, and he's also desiring holiness. He's desiring purity. He's desiring growth. And so that's what leads him to say later on in Psalm 141, go to Psalm 141, that mindset that I have blind spots and I want God to expose them. Well, how is God going to expose them? Um, Probably through someone else, maybe through other means, but probably through someone else, which is why David says what he does in Psalm 141. Notice what he says, starting in verse 3. It's David again. Set a guard, O Yahweh, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart incline to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds, in company with men who work iniquity, and let me not eat of their delicacies. Verse 5, let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Yet my prayer is continually against their evil deeds. And what is he saying? David is saying, I want holiness. I don't want sin. I don't want to go near the delicacies of the wicked. And so what he leads him to say, I'm ready for a righteous man to strike me. I'm ready for him to rebuke me because it's kindness. It's kindness. And so humility and a desire for holiness ought to lead you to that kind of heart where you're ready to be corrected. You want to be corrected because you understand that is one of God's means to keep you from sin. Now, someone comes to you and, and starts correcting you. What do you need to do? Well, what did Jesus say in Matthew 18, 15 through 17? What was the goal for the brother being corrected? Listen. That is going to be the hardest thing for you to do when you're corrected. It's the hardest thing for all of us to do because it strikes at our pride. We're defensive. But what do you need to do? Someone's correcting you. Listen. Don't fight back. Don't start defending yourself. Listen. Just take it. Take it. Doesn't necessarily mean what the other person is saying is right. They could be in error. But you need to listen. James 1.19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Let me show you uh, an example of when someone doesn't listen to correction in the Old Testament. Go to 2 Chronicles. I don't know the last time you were in 2 Chronicles, but it's good. And in 2 Chronicles, it focuses on David's line, primarily. focuses on um, the Davidic kings, and we got one of these kings... 2 Chronicles 25. This is the opposite of listening. 2 Chronicles 25. Now this guy, Amaziah, we're looking at Amaziah. Um, he was a good king. That's how he's evaluated. He's like, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But look at what happens in verse 14. 2 Chronicles 25, verse 14. 
After Amaziah came from striking down the Edomites, he brought the gods of the men of Seir and set them up as his gods and worshipped them, making offerings to them. Uh Uh-oh. Therefore, Yahweh was angry with Amaziah and sent to him a prophet who said to him, Why have you sought the gods of a people who did not deliver their own people from your hand? But as he was speaking, the king said to him, Have we made you a royal counselor? Stop! Why should you be struck down? So the prophet stopped, but said, I know that God is determined to destroy you because you have done this and have not listened to my counsel. Now, we tend to behave like Amaziah, don't we? Because someone starts to correct us and we say, no, 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 I didn't make you my counselor. What right have you to speak to me? Stop. And what you're egging on there, if you do that, is your own destruction, which is exactly what happened to Amaziah. I have lots more verses there from Proverbs, but if you read through Proverbs, again, you're going to catch that, that refrain of, if you don't listen to advice, you're a fool. If you don't listen to someone correcting you, you're a fool, and you're aiming at your own destruction, which is very, very, very much true, even in what we see in Matthew 18, right? You go, and you correct and you're correcting this brother or sister, and they're not listening, they're refusing to listen, and what? They're, if they refuse to listen and repent, they're not a disciple. They're off on the road to hell. And one of the means of God's grace to preserve us is listening to the counsel of others. The flip side of how Proverbs puts it is a wise man listens to advice someone who desires wisdom, someone who desires intelligence, someone uh, heeding reproof is prudent, all of these things. You can read some of those verses I put there. Do you need to listen? Listen, you hear it. Does that mean you agree? Not necessarily. They could be wrong. You listen, then you consider and pray. You maybe even ask others, hey, have you observed, someone, so-and-so came to me and told me about this. Have you observed that in my life? Someone you trust? and then respond. You either agree and say, yeah, I need to repent in that area, or no, they were wrong. I appreciate what they were trying to do, but they were wrong, and I move on. But more often than not, it's going to be kind of a mix. Well, there were some things they said that were right, and I need to work on those, and there were some things that were not right. But we, out of humility and a desire for holiness, we got to receive correction. We need to both be correctors and receivers of correction. The application from all of this, I mean, it's fairly straightforward. We do this. We be a people that corrects and receives correction. But let me return to why. And again, the question of, aren't we just going to be a grumpy, morose, uh, downcast church if we're always correcting one another? Actually, I would argue exactly the opposite. We will be a very happy people because our joy comes from loving the Lord and being rid of sin so that we can draw near to the Lord. And if we are correcting one another out of a place of love and receiving correction out of a desire for holiness and humility and a desire to know and love the Lord better, then we use this means of God's grace of correcting others and being corrected. Well, by God's grace and through the power of the Holy Spirit, that we, we are getting rid of sin in our life, and that leads us to happiness, to joy. 
to locking arms with one another and pursuing the mission that God has for us will be a place of health. And it'll stand out to our culture because, like I said, our culture says, well, if you love someone, you just cover over, you know, whatever. Not only cover it over, you celebrate it. And what we're commending, what I'm arguing from the scriptures this morning is that you do the exact opposite. You confront it, and that's what's actually going to lead you to joy. You see, the gospel, the gospel frees us to correct and be corrected. The gospel says that, what does Jesus say in Matthew? Um, Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. That's what the gospel is designed to do. That 10,000 talent debt that we talked about last week, that's what the gospel does. So if we understand that, we understand the level of forgiveness that is given to us in the gospel, the level of grace that God has given to us in the gospel, we will experience it ourselves and, and say, doesn't matter what's exposed in my life. It could be deep and dark and horrific, and yet I know that the power of the cross is sufficient. The power of Christ's atonement in my behalf is sufficient to deal with that, so I'm not afraid to be corrected. I want to deal with that sin because of what Christ has done. And then as we experience that, we also want to help our brothers and sisters along and say, oh, I've experienced this great grace in the gospel. My sin has been covered. And I don't want any brother or sister to go down that, uh, th- that dark hole of isolation and sin and hidden sin. I want to rescue them so that they experience the same joy that I have. The gospel frees us to correct and be corrected. No matter what is exposed, the atonement of Christ can cover it. But to make this work, you need to know and be known in the local church. You can't hide yourself. Pro, uh, uh, one of, uh, Proverbs, I think it's 28.1, uh, where it says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. What's the opposite of that? To know and be known in the local church because we are centered on the Jesus and on the gospel that has redeemed us, we can practice correction. Practice and receive biblical correction out of Christ's love for fellow believers and the church. Let's pray. Jesus, you call us to things that are odd and hard and uncomfortable, but you give us the power through your Holy Spirit to do it. Lord, help us to be this people so that we are growing and putting off sin and pursuing righteousness, that we might enjoy you more, and that we might be a faithful lampstand in our community. Lord, that we might be a holy church, a pure church, for the sake of your name, for the sake of the representation of the gospel. Lord, help us to be this people. Help the leaders to be ready for correction and to correct. Help the members to be Uh, ready for correction and to correct. Lord, this is the part of what you have given us to do as followers of you. It is hard, it is difficult, it is uncomfortable. Give us the grace to do it out of love. We ask and pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.